0: Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community.
1: In this episode, we look at climate emergency education, Ofsted and their £24 million. We look at COVID and long COVID and the recent developments. We look at upper pay scale expectations in your working life and we bust those illness myths.
0: Welcome, as always, to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community, and this being the November 2021 episode. Thanks for subscribing, for those of you who have, and as always, I say the same thing I say every month, but please, please do let your colleagues know, share widely with anybody who's interested in education, let them know what it is we're doing, get them up to date on education things, leave us reviews, and so on and so forth, would be fantastic, we'd love to hear from you you can get in touch with us at educationpolicy@community-tu.org at ask us questions or give us some feedback on that address so onto our here and now section then martin as you outlined there for us right at the start of the episode. We're starting with climate emergency education.
1: Yeah, the DfE has produced a draft climate change and sustainability strategy and in this booklet they've outlined a number of strategies that they are going to uh, undertake over the coming years. They include certain strategies that the DfE are going to take and things that schools themselves as local organisations can also take, covering such things as building work, green energy, in Etc. as well as curriculum activities for the children through science, geography
0: and the PHSE. When's the sort of deadline or when's the intended time scale for this all coming in?
1: This is scheduled to happen over the next five to six years with certain aspects of this coming in sooner. Uh, the curriculum aspects for example are coming online almost immediately because science and geography already cover huge amounts yeah. of the uh, sort of environment and, and science behind these things
0: already. It sounds like there's going to be adequate time for schools to embed this and implement it. Is there going to be um, adequate resources and funding as far as we're aware?
1: As far as we're aware, there is going to be funding that will be brought forward through the spending review that's just happened and through the annual spending that goes into schools, capital grants and and other things that cover major expenditure, particularly to cover things like switching to green energy and uh, improvements to insulation, new buildings. So, yeah, there is going to be funding there. The question, as always, though, will be whether there will be sufficient funding and sufficient time to actually achieve these. What are quite laudable goals?
0: And I think we can all have our opinions on whether we think that will be an adequate amount of money and resources or not, but we'll wait and see before we, we will wait and see eh?
1: A yeah. voice community did put out a statement to say that they supported the aims of this, and as always, we're waiting for more detail more information about the spending but we hope that there will be something forthcoming there
0: to make this a reality okay so moving on slightly then to Ofsted now I mean, (laughs) £24 million extra for Ofsted to speed up inspections. Can you explain a bit more for us? I mean, it seems a little bit um, the wrong time to be doing this to me.
1: As a union, we question whether Ofsted needs more money in order to pick up the delay to inspections. We would prefer to see that money better spent by going directly into schools to support the recovery agenda in some way. It doesn't matter what assurances Ofsted give, the reality is that by increasing the amount of inspection that is going to drive stress in an already stressed and overworked workforce.
0: I think what you've said there about it doesn't matter what reassurances they give is actually a really key point on this. You know, I think that to- Ofsted as a brand within schools is relatively toxic at this point. I think it's a be questionable whether it's fit for purpose um, and whether it's actually being used to drive academization as a governmental tool and so it does seem um, it does raise questions doesn't it as to why this money now at a time when schools are still reeling from the first lockdowns potentially heading towards uh, further measures needing to be put back into schools. Is this really the time to be speeding up inspections and aiding Ofsted to continue this work, which most people question the, the, the effectiveness of anyway?
1: As a union, we issued a statement late last month uh, commenting on this announcement, and we actually said that this displays an arrogant disregard for the profession at a time when schools and colleges, staff and students are struggling to work through poor ventilation, rising levels of infection and increasing absence. So I wholeheartedly agree with what you've said there and we are shocked at this announcement we just can't understand the reasoning behind it since it's going to take school and college leaders away from their schools because they are the ones who typically act as the Ofsted inspectors rather than leading their own staff and students through the pandemic and yeah it's unclear what the inspector is hoping to achieve by this since, you know, they're getting plenty of data through, through illness reports, through absence um, data, through assessment data from the reception baseline assessment. So plenty of information is coming through and we're not quite sure exactly what it is that Ofsted are hoping to achieve by this.
0: No, and and we know, um, and there's plenty of reports around, and we know obviously from our own members, that Ofsted is one of the key factors in, in people leaving education. You know, people... Uh, not wanting to continue either in teaching at all or with their management responsibilities because, and, and, I, and I quote uh, a member I spoke to recently, "I don't want to have to stand in front of Ofsted again mm. and explain the things that that you know that I'm responsible for." I think there needs to be a serious reflection. Um, on the part of the government and, um, and the inspector at Ofsted as to actually their role in education and whether they are fulfilling the role that they are purported to at the moment.
1: And of course, we will keep feeding members' views back to Ofsted. We have regular meetings with Ofsted. So please, if you're listening and you've got something that you would like to tell us about, how an Ofsted inspection has gone, how the inspectors treated you, do get in touch, educationpolicy at community-tu.org
0: on to covid then one day we'll do a podcast where we don't need to mention covid but unfortunately that's not today Omicron you know are there anything um, is there anything you, you we need to be um, we need to be telling our members on this at the moment
1: Omicron is very much a present risk and it's important that as members we don't underestimate the power of small actions in combating what could be quite a big thing there's an awful lot that we don't currently know about this particular variant and so therefore we must treat it seriously and by taking small steps such as increasing social distancing making sure that there's adequate ventilation in classrooms, regular hand washing, and wearing of face coverings. Um, Of course, face coverings are now mandatory in all communal areas anyway. They could have a significant impact in helping to reduce infections among schools, and therefore helping us to get to the end of term so that we can enjoy Christmas together. We also need to bear in mind the activities that will be happening over the coming month. Um, And so it may be wise to consider additional measures in order to make sure that some of those activities
0: can still take place safely. Okay, CO2 monitors, where are we at with those? Are they in all schools yet? So far, the latest news is that 99%
1: of secondary schools and over 80% of primary schools have now got CO2 monitors. The latest news is that this will be concluded by the end of the year, and that CO2 monitors are also being sent into early years settings. So that's really good news there as well.
0: Okay, so let's just slow this bit down for a second, just because it is a bit data-driven, and uh, we want everyone to be able to understand it. So. In terms of these CO2 monitors, voice community's advice is for schools to take notice at 800 parts per million. That's what's right, an yes. outdoor level? To put it in context, what's it, what's it normally like outside?
1: So background levels of CO2 are around about 400 parts per million. And indoors, a consistent CO2 value of less than 800 parts per million is probably going to indicate that a space is well ventilated. Please note the probably's and the arounds. That's because CO2 is present in the atmosphere. And obviously, in rural areas, outdoor spaces, the levels of CO2 are likely to be less than they would be in an inner city school, for example. But broadly speaking, background levels, outdoors are around about 400 parts per million. Levels of over 800 parts per million are not necessarily something to be concerned about, but that is an indicator that maybe action
0: needs to be taken, and it should be taken soon. Okay. so what we're saying is, at 800 parts per million, doesn't mean that room is at that point unsafe. But leaving it until such a point when it is unsafe seems a bit daft doesn't it Mm -hmm. so at that point start to take some mitigating measures such as opening a window for how long
1: at the moment with the weather as it is current advice is that if the heating is on indoors opening a window for around about 20 to 30 minutes um, will allow a significant amount of cold air in, simply because of the change in temperatures between the two spaces. So that cold air will come in, the hot air will move out, and there will therefore be a change in the air in a, in a relatively short period of time.
0: That goes for regular classrooms, I assume. What about areas where uh, singing or high levels of physical activity, dance, um, PE, whatever else, where they're taking place?
1: areas such as gymnasiums, that sort of thing, we would recommend a level of below 800 parts per million anyway, simply because the participants using those spaces will obviously be breathing more deeply as well as breathing out more deeply. So there's a greater risk there of increased CO2 levels.
0: Now it's obviously important for people to look out for any symptoms of uh, higher levels of co2 particularly perhaps in that one percent of those schools that haven't received the uh, monitors yet so what are the symptoms people need to look out for
1: worth bearing in mind that these symptoms are not conclusive we're not medics and it's also worth pointing out that these symptoms are for particular high levels of co2 um, so things to look out for would be increased headaches dizziness, confusion, those sorts of things. In terms
0: of prevention measures, then, we know that it is mandatory for uh, everyone to wear masks in communal areas now. Uh, we, we'd like people to go a little bit further, though, wouldn't we, with, with some prevention measures? You know, I, I think even though they're not mandatory, there are things that schools can do to try and prevent the spread of COVID.
1: Absolutely. We've we've always been supportive of an individual's right to wear a face covering if that's what they feel that they should be doing. And we would actively recommend wearing face coverings in those communal areas. And um, if you were to choose to wear a face covering in classroom, you know, have that conversation with your senior colleagues. And that should be fine as long as it doesn't prevent learning from taking place. Other things that the school could consider doing in order to further reduce risk, to reintroduce bubbles or one-way systems, and again, to reduce the number of visitors and parents onto site.
0: So where can people go? Where can members or people working in education go to be kept informed on the latest um changes in education, so for example the masks in communal areas to become mandatory, if that you know if changes like that are going to happen in the future where would people need to go to, to get that up-to-date information?
1: So the latest information from the Department for Education can be found on the Department for Education's website which you can find just by typing into any search engine. Of course they can also look at our website union.org.uk and community tuorg for our statements and updates which we'll put out as soon as we are aware of them.
0: Okay, we're moving on but not very far because we're moving on only as far as long Covid. So this is something that's becoming more of an issue we've noticed in terms of uh, member contact to the union over the last few weeks, um, uh, possibly even up to a month. So the first first thing I want us to discuss, Martin, if we can, is are, are policies appropriate? Now, the policies I'm kind of thinking about here are absence management policies, policies on sick pay, uh, policies on phased returns. It's certainly in my experience of the where I've been dealing with, it would appear and that they're not that appropriate at this time. But policies can be reviewed, can't they? So this is something that perhaps we should we should be recommending.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for me to say, and it's it's impossible for us to say, obviously, wholesale. But it would appear that policies that consider long COVID in the same way as other absences and illnesses are therefore probably missing a trick at the moment. And there should probably be some sort of addendum or an appendix which looks at long COVID in a slightly different way. We know that the government gave some uh, indication that COVID in general should not be treated in the same way as standard illness. For example, self-isolation should not be recorded as illness and COVID illness might be recorded differently to other illnesses. Both must be recorded, but obviously are not the same thing. covid Illness, so if you actually have COVID itself, can be recorded as sickness and you should be paid sick leave as normal. But there's an awful lot about long COVID as an emerging illness that we just don't know about yet. Lots of people who have long COVID suffer what might be considered a a substantial and a long-term negative effect. It has a, a sort of a disabling impact upon them. Therefore, it could be considered under the Equality Act, for example. But as yet, there have not been any test cases to see whether long COVID does fall fully under the auspices of the Equality Act. As a disability, you mean? As a disability, absolutely, yeah. I say it again we're not medics so it's very difficult for us to hypothesize here but that it will take time for the medical profession to understand the effects of long Covid and and the other impairments that it might cause and the effects that it might have on someone's ability to carry out their daily
0: work. I suppose the simplest thing for us to say perhaps at the moment whilst we are as you've rightly pointed out perhaps um, not as well informed on this as we will be one day in the future, uh, particularly on policies, is that managing these absences, absence management policies are to do with managing the absence and managing the effects of COVID's effect on workers is the important bit here. Um, Don't, uh, you know, our our advice to schools and to members would be not to let it get out of hand, you know, not to let um, these absences or or, a reduction in work hours and so on and so forth get particularly out of hand.
1: Absolutely. It's always a good idea to have a conversation with your employer, for employers to have conversations with their staff well in advance of things becoming problems. There might be reasonable adjustments that could be made to support you to work um, if you are unable to work all of the time. Or there may be adjustments that can be made to allow you to work from home for some of the time it's also worth pointing out that as well as disability employers have to be careful to avoid all sorts of discrimination for example age or gender Um, and long covid has been found for example to severely affect older people and people from ethnic minorities Um, and so in the future there could be an angle there to look at
0: okay on to the section of the podcast we like to call Your Working Life, which is all about uh, the working life of our members, um, of course, who work in education. This month we are looking at UPS expectations. So Martin, first of all, can you give us a brief explanation as to what UPS is and how it differs from perhaps other um, pay point scales? For teachers, UPS stands for the upper
1: pay scale. Teachers who work in maintained schools can be paid on the main scale, which is a six-point scale. Following successful performance management can move from that main scale, the main pay scale is the MPS, onto the upper pay scale. And there are three pay points, upper pay scale one, upper pay scale two and upper pay scale three.
0: So you didn't mention there, I notice, a word often used uh, in relation to the UPS, which is threshold.
1: Yes yeah, so upper pay scale is for post threshold teachers and when it was introduced there was a, a fairly bureaucratic process that you had to go through you had to produce a portfolio of evidence to show that you were meeting or capable of meeting the post threshold standards and that would be assessed and if you were successful you would be moved onto the upper pay scale that process no longer exists. All you need to do to move from the main scale onto the upper pay scale is to show uh, an indication that you would like to be considered for the upper pay scale and then your performance management will provide the necessary evidence to prove that you can meet those additional expectations.
0: So, you made the point there that technically these days you don't need to go through this whole rigorous process to be moved onto the upper pay scale. All you really need is to have expressed an interest, perhaps one sentence in an email to the appropriate person to say you'd like to be moved onto the upper pay scale or be considered for that. That's the statutory uh, position. Some schools may have their own policies on this, I suppose.
1: We would expect all schools to have a pay policy, and the pay policy will be where you will find information out about the process in your particular school for moving from main scale onto upper pay scale. But we still would not expect it to be overly bureaucratic and it shouldn't really be taking you away from your duties in the classroom because the whole purpose of the upper pay scale is to reward long-serving teachers
0: who choose to remain in the classroom. Okay, so first point then, I've got further questions, but my first question is, what do you need to be demonstrating in order to be considered for a UPS payment scale? Okay so the school teachers pay
1: and conditions document which should be considered the key document in all of this says that an application from a qualified teacher will be successful where the relevant body is satisfied that the teacher is highly competent in all elements of the teacher standards and the teacher's achievements and contribution to an educational setting or settings are substantial And sustained. So those two things, whatever you do, you need to do highly competently and your contributions need to be substantial and sustained, which if you've had successful um, performance management over the past six years is likely to be true of most teachers.
0: So that doesn't mean that you have to have responsibility for something. Say you have to be the literacy coordinator or you have to be the deputy head of year 10. It doesn't mean you have to be, nor does it mean you have to be running drama clubs, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean you've got to be doing those things. It can be that your contribution to the education setting can be your performance over the last six years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Although it is important to note that if you are the drama club um, teacher, or if you're running a football team or whatever you're doing, those can contribute, but they can't be required because those are extracurricular activities which can't count towards statutory provision
0: anyway. Okay, so let's imagine that our, uh, our hypothetical teacher has been at the school for long enough as it was on m6 at the time the top of the main scale is highly competent in all elements of the relevant standards and has contributed to the educational setting on a substantial and sustained level they've become ups one hooray congratulations to them what does that mean they then have to be doing? So I think realistically, this is where these questions come from from members over the last month is, I'm a UPS, can my school make me do X or Y? What do they have to be doing or what can, they, what can be expected of them once they have successfully achieved upper pay scale?
1: So the demands of the upper pay scale are in essence no different to the demands of the main scale. You are still required to be a highly competent teacher and to meet all of the relevant teacher standards. However, as we've said, what you do need to ensure is that your contribution, your achievements, the work that you do in the school is substantial and sustained. So by virtue of the fact that you are an experienced teacher, those things are likely to mean that you are putting in additional work maybe acting as a mentor for an early career teacher maybe it is that you have taken on some sort of subject coordinatorship in a primary school maybe it is that you have decided to do some additional training all of those things can be part of being an upper pay scale teacher but they can't be required of you just because you're an upper pay scale teacher what is required of you as an upper pay scale teacher is that you agree and meet any targets that are set during your appraisal process and continue to meet those teacher standards
0: okay so where do um tlrs fit in here teaching and learning responsibility points where mm. did they fit in here again thinking back to sort of where this 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 um, idea for the podcast came from on this occasion um i think the conversation i was having was that um a teacher had been doing a job which was considered tlr but that that was now being uh you know there was no tlr for that position anymore and it was just expected of the ups teachers
1: There is a difficulty here. There's often conflation between TLRs and upper pay scale, and particularly in smaller schools, It can be very difficult for them to find the money to actually fund someone correctly and pay them a TLR, which is why expectations of people who would normally get a TLR are being passed on to people who've got upper pay scales. It's important to point out that TLRs are teaching and learning responsibility points, and they are completely different from the upper pay scale. Anybody can be given a TLR, even if they're on the main scale or if they're on the upper pay scale. The upper pay scale is there to reward experienced teachers. TLRs are there to give additional payment for people who have taken on additional teaching and learning responsibilities. For example, the head of English would expect to get a TLR for being the head of English, regardless of whether they were being paid on the main pay scale or the upper pay scale. There are three types of TLR. TLR one is the top paying um, bracket, TLR two in the middle, and TLR three is for fixed term roles, special projects, that sort of thing. So if someone had a particular temporary role to perhaps improve attendance at school, they may be given a TLR for that particular project. It's important to say TLRs are attached to a job role. So if you're the head of English or the head of maths, that TLR comes with the job, whereas UPS is a natural payment progression for an experienced
0: and highly capable teacher. Okay, so directed time calendar should be published each year. Again, I could speak for the last school I worked in. It was published each year before the previous year had even finished. Directed time is when teachers are directed by their head teacher to be at work, and available for work. There is a maximum of 1,265 hours per academic year over 195 days. That's a maximum, not a target. Directed time has not been removed or suspended during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, it may be possible that in your school, your head teacher is allowing you to fulfil some of your directed time at home away from school away from other people uh, as, a, as a way of pr- trying to reduce and prevent the spread of Covid. Martin what is included in directed time in a nutshell? Teaching time is made up of the time that you actually stand in front of
1: a class delivering lessons, it's made up of PPA time, it's made up of break times but not lunch times and it's also made up of those after school activities that you are required to attend such as parents evenings, after school meetings, um, maybe prize giving events, those sorts of things. If you are expected to be there, then it should be included in that directed time calendar. It's a good idea for a school to have a few hours contingency in order to cover unexpected additional events and commitments. For example, if Ofsted phone up and say they're coming in and the head teacher says, let's have a meeting to discuss Ofsted, that contingency time would cover that
0: meeting time. Part-time teachers, their directed time it should be prorated against the school's timetable teaching week. If your school
1: has 25 teaching hours in a week, so five hours of teaching time every day, and someone works three days, that's 60% of the week. They get paid, obviously, 60% of the full-time rate, because they're only working for 60% of the time. And they can only be required to work 60% of a full-time uh, contract, so only 60% of those 1265 hours.
0: Um, it can be hard to work out part-time hours, uh, but if you do need some help, you know after you've asked the leadership at the school for some support, if you're still not sure, or you still think they're messing you around, please do get in touch with us. And if you've uh, never seen a directed time calendar, or you need any support on this, after having tried and solved it sort of informally uh, with leaders in your school, please do get in touch with us if you need that help. And finally, then, for the November edition of the policy podcast for England, we are on to Mythbusters. Boom! Still love it. OK, we said at the start, this is about th- the duties you are expected to carry out when you're ill. Um, now, we didn't want to confuse people with duties as in break duties and stuff. So here we mean your regular working duties, the things you are expected to be able to do uh, on a normal working day and what the expectation is on you if you're ill.
1: Let's be honest, if you are ill, you are not officially available for work and therefore arguably you should not be doing any work. However, we do know for teachers that in many cases illness and absence are not necessarily always the same thing. And therefore, there may be situations where you might want to continue doing some of your work or to provide work in the case of your absence. So I think we need to just find out a little bit more about all of those differences and then we can uh,
0: have a look at busting some myths. OK, I'll give you the first myth then. You seem, you seem raring to go and chomping at the bit. So I'll give you your first myth. When you're ill, you need to provide cover work. Maybe.
1: In cases of a planned absence, for example, if you were going to be uh, at hospital and the school knew about this, then a conversation between you and your head of department or your school leadership will determine who is responsible for providing the cover work. It's not that you're going to be expected to cover that class yourself, but it is reasonable to expect you to give them some indication of where those pupils are at, where they should be going, and maybe to provide appropriate work in the intervening time.
0: Yeah, so that's a planned absence, isn't it? And and let's be really clear, that's when you know you're going to... And the same would be would apply if you were having a day off for something else. There is still, I think a myth that when you ring in at seven o'clock in the morning because you've waited as long as you can to see if you're well enough to go to work and you eventually ring the absence line at seven o'clock to say you won't be there that you'll be sending in some work
1: there is no contractual expectation there's no expectation established in the burgundy book or in the school teacher's Pay conditions document that if you are ill you will provide work so that's the bottom line there is no expectation on teachers to do so if you are capable of it Then it's going to help you and it's going to help your children and it's going to help the school if you are able to give them a little bit of a steer about what it is that that class would have been doing. In some schools, a medium term plan can give enough of a steer for your classes to have work set for them um, by the school leadership or by your line manager. Long term illness is a bit different. So if you are off work because of stress or anxiety and that stress or anxiety is keeping you away from work, it is likely that the school is not going to be in touch with you regularly and therefore they will take on responsibility for providing work, setting work, um, you know, employing cover staff to uh, direct your classes.
0: OK, so let's just give that sort of very bottom line then, I suppose. Uh, aside from what individuals may want to be doing um, in order to not make too much work for themselves. Cause I think that's often the issue with teachers is you don't have a day off because it causes more work than it that it saves you. Um, but aside from what you might want to do for yourself, there is no expectation on you to be doing any work that includes sending work in if you're off ill. Because if you're there ill, you're no ill.
1: There's no expectation if you're ill. You're ill. If you're too ill to go into work,
0: you are too ill to set work. I think that probably yeah, wraps Smith Busters up. Boom! And therefore wraps up another episode uh, for another month. Don't forget, follow us on social media.
1: Please get in touch with us. Email us at educationpolicy at
0: community-tu.org. On Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash communityunion uh, where you can find all the updates, news, events and much much more. You can also follow Voice Community on Twitter and on Instagram. And for help and advice visit our website www.voicetheunion.org.uk or www.community-tu.org where you can check out all of our frequently asked questions, our advice centre and uh, a whole host of information sheets on subjects uh some of which we've covered over the course of the podcasts and some of which we haven't lots of great info and advice on there
1: and if you can't find the information that you are looking for there then please do contact us on 01332 372
0: 337 and speak to one of our team don't forget to like and subscribe and remind all your friends and family and colleagues to um to subscribe as well Um, leave comments and get in touch with us on all the details we've just uh, given you. And we look
1: forward to seeing you in 2022 on another Education Policy Podcast.